Hey everybody, Doug Schaefer with a new episode of The Taste. We took a little break from podcasting, but we're back. It's a gorgeous day outside, fall is in the air, the vineyards are turning a beautiful golden color, and we are gearing up for the holidays. Thanks very much for checking out our latest podcast. I'm glad to be back. I've been really looking forward to talking with our guest today, Jamie Arajo. She's a second-generation vintner. Her parents, Bart and Daphne, launched Arajo Estate and have gone on to lots of other projects. Jamie's got a great story, so let's dig in and get started. Hey everybody, Doug Schaefer, another episode of The Taste. Welcome back. We've got uh, a special guest today. I was thinking about her last night, and I was trying to think the first time we met, and she has to confirm it for me, but we've got Jamie Araujo with us today. Hello. Uh, Jamie, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks and for having me. You bet. And my recollection was, I know this is going to sound, I think it's going to sound romantic, but I was working. <laughs> it, w- it was Paris, wasn't it? I see. Now, I was looking back, and I was trying to remember. <laughs> I thought it was Hong Kong or Beijing. Oh, you know, you could have been. Listen, boy, you I, listen to us sound like we're world travelers. Isn't that cool? I know. Don't we sound fancy? <laughs> but, <laughs> but we were both working at the time. Well, we were because I know you've been, we'll get into your story in a minute, and you've worked all over the world, but uh, I go on these uh, jaunts and junkets with the Napa Valley Vintners Association mm-hmm. selling wine and, and doing tastings in Beijing and Shanghai and, and uh Paris and Chicago and Cleveland and Jacksonville and everywhere else. But I, I know, I, I think I was on one with, uh, Annette was with me and we were in Paris. I think we met you and there was a cookbook authors. Is it Dory Greenspan? Was that? Dory Greenspan, who right. is one of the most awesome human beings on the planet, by th- the way, just so for as sure, an aside. Oh, good. For, so for sure, that was when we saw each other that day. I remember that. Good. Yes. So anyway, yeah. good. So we're going to get to your story in a bit, but we've got to start with your folks because uh, you're so intertwined Definitely. with those guys. But Bart and mm-hmm. Daphne Araujo started Araujo Estate. I know your dad came from San Francisco. What about your mom? Where'd she come from? So um, Daphne was actually, um, she was an army brat, as a matter of fact. Okay. So she um, lived all over the world, including... Um, I think DC, somewhere in the Midwest, um, Turkey for a while, and then uh, actually settled over in Hawaii. Wow. In Honolulu. And she went to high school out there um, and then eventually came back to the mainland and met my dad in, down in Santa Barbara when she was working as a landscape architect and he was working as a real estate developer. So match made in heaven. There you go. Cause he was, uh, he went to school at SC, USC and, uh, yeah, he went to SC and then Harvard business school and Harvard business school. Got it. And so, and, uh, so they met in Santa Barbara. So you grew up where exactly then? <laughs> yes, I guess is the question to that uh, answer to that question. Um, so I was born in Boston and then we moved back to California and we lived a little bit all over the place. Did settle in Santa Barbara for quite a few years, but then I went off to boarding school when I was 14 okay. um, in Ojai, so still California, and um, then went to Georgetown uh, and then just kind of kept going. So <laughs> into wow. the UK and France and everything. Whereas my parents actually went from Santa Barbara in 1990 and moved up to Napa when Got they bought the Isley Vineyard. So when they moved up to Napa, you were already out of the house and gone, traveling around the world and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, I was in college. I was in college, Got it. yeah. Georgetown. And tell me about in, in, around the house at, at home, because this is, I'm always curious about this. Was there wine on the table? Were your folks into wine before they bought the vineyard? You know, it's so funny. Not really. I, I mean, I do remember the the proudly displayed bottle of like cake bread Chardonnay at Thanksgiving or something. Um, but we were definitely not a wine family, um, at least certainly on my dad's side. And I think, you know, they came to it a little bit later um, in the more in the 80s. Okay. And then once they discovered it, it was like a long lost love. So it just sped up very fast. (laughs) And, you know, honestly, when they moved up to Napa, they were truly, you know, my dad had sold his home building business and they were looking to move back to the Bay Area because dad's from um, the San Francisco area. 
and they're not city people. So they wanted to live in the country. And, you know, the 80s country around San Francisco was Napa. (laughs) So they started looking in Sonoma and Napa and they found a couple of places. Um, Funnily enough, Gene Phillips, who most people know as the founder of Screaming Eagle, Mm -hmm. was um, a real estate agent at the time. She was there, a state, real estate agent, and she's the one who found the Isley Vineyard for them. And um, it was pretty funny. She'd already found them two properties, which they had bought, and were planning to do things, I think, up on Spring Mountain or something. Oh. And then she all of a sudden called them up and said, uh, yeah, no, there's this thing that just came on the market. You guys have to see it. And they're like, I'm um, Jean. <laughs> we don't need another property. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 no. You got to see this. This is you guys, I swear. So to humor her, they went to see it, and then they went, well, crud, okay, you're right. And they sold the other two properties and bought the Isley Vineyard. Um, so Jean Phillips, who's fantastic, she's a neighbor of mine right now. In fact, I buy grapes from her. So she found this new property. They went for it. And it's, it was the Isley, the old Isley property. And I know about it, you know about it, but a lot of my folks listening might have heard the name. And mm-hmm. maybe, can you give us a little history about the whole property and why, why it became so famous and then your folks just, you know, made it even better? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting about it is, is first of all, I mean, we hear the Isley Vineyard and I think a lot of people just think of it as a, a weird name for a property um, that doesn't get pronounced how it's spelt and all that kind of stuff. But the Isleys are actually um, a family, <laughs> an amazing family. Barbara and Milt were the ones who bought the property in the 60s. They're the ones who planted it to Cabernet. And um, they are the ones who started in 1971. Milt just felt like he had something really special there. And it had actually been under Vine, but it was planted to, I think, if memory serves, like Zinfandel and Riesling, Mm -hmm. something like that. So they planted it over to Cabernet in 64, I'm pretty sure. And um, in 1971, Milt had this crazy idea that um, they should actually do a vineyard designate that it actually was special enough to be called the Isley Vineyard on the bottle. And Paul Draper, in 1971, did the Ridge Isley, which is the only time he ever did it, and is still one of the most extraordinary wines I've ever had the pleasure to taste in my life. And um, and then, you know, they kind of went back and forth for a couple of years, but then in 1974, started working with Joe Phelps. Um, and Joe Phelps did an Isley, Cabernet from 1974, 74, 75, up until 1991. And I remember um, that. That was a really great, great wine. That got a great reputation. So it seems like that amazing. was kind of happening. Got it. Okay. Yeah. No. And that really sort of started um, to create the reputation of, of that vineyard. And then, so my parents bought the property in 1990. And honestly, originally had just thought, well, okay, we'll just, you know, we've got some grapes, we'll sort of be part of the community, we'll sell the grapes to Phelps, this is easy, but you know my dad, like that was never gonna happen, right? He he had to get his hands in there and do it himself. So they built a winery on the property and um, started making wine, and, and it's pretty wonderful. I, I don't know, I love this story because it just says so many things about the community and Napa and whatever. So in 1991, the vintage 91, um, Phelps, Joe Phelps had the contract for the grapes, for all of the grapes for the Isley Vineyard. It was the last year he was going to have them, but he had the right to that. And, you know, I mean, they had just cut off his supply to one of his most popular and prestigious single vineyard wines, right? Right. One could be forgiven for assuming that Joe was like, all right, I hate you and I will do everything (laughs) I can to undermine you. And instead, because our winery got finished a little early, Joe came to my dad and said, well, this is silly. Why don't we split the harvest this year? And so you know I'm not cherry picking the best spots because you don't know what they are yet. (laughs) We'll do it row by row. So two rows for you, two rows for me. And so 1991 is the only year that there are two Isley Cabernets and one's Phelps and one's Araujo. I did our very first vintage. I didn't know that. How cool. And so your winery was, by that time he had built it, because knowing your mm-hmm. dad, knowing your dad, man, he he cranks. So I, I I'm not surprised. Yeah, I'm not surprised <laughs> it was done earlier. That usually isn't the case in this business. And uh, I and I know he'd hired on Tony Soder and Mia Klein, right? Because exactly, yeah. He, first vintage was Tony and, and Mia. Well, because I've got a story for you. You might oh. know this. You might not. And it, it's right in the same vein of, uh, you know, 
all of us in Napa were competitors, but uh, we're neighbors and we work together. Mm -hmm. So the story goes like this. At that time, the late 80s, Tony Soder had been working with us, with Elias and me. And we were just, um, we were been working together a couple, three years and he was cutting us loose, which was fine. And all of a sudden he calls up and says, hey, um, you got you got some time to meet somebody. I said, well, he goes, well, it's a new client of mine, this guy, Barton Daphne Araujo. I said, well, what's <laughs> up? He goes, well, they bought the Isley place. And, and you know, your Cabernet is the Isley clone. I yeah. said, yeah. So here's the story. If you go back in history, when dad first planted Cabernet on our hillside here in 1975, four or five, he had the local guy, John Pena, who was his vineyard manager. He sneezed him and Pina, dad said, I want cab. So Pina went and got some Cabernet. Pina also farmed for Milton Barbara Isley. So he just I went up, it. he went up and took some cuttings from, from <laughs> Isley's vineyard. This, so awesome. Trust me. And, and planted our first hillside, which turned out to be to this day, the most wonderful wine we've ever made. Sunspot vineyard. Aww. And, um, and dad told me the story. It was like about eight, a year later, their mom and dad are at some cocktail party and the Isleys were there and Milt comes up and goes, God damn it. God damn it. Schaefer. And dad goes, what? He goes, you got my budwood. And dad goes, <laughs> dad was like, what are you talking about? I don't even know what you're talking about. He goes, well, Pina came up and got my, you know, cuttings from my place and put them on yours. And dad was like, well, sorry. And no big, you know, no harm, no foul. And so, so off we go making some, you know, beautiful Cabernet out of this, this, this clone, this Isley clone. And so, um, when your folks bought the property, I think it was Phylloxera too, but they had to do some replanting. And so Tony mm -hmm. came to me and said, hey, um, you know, and so I met your folks, couldn't be nice, and your dad, they were sweet as can be, and they say, hey, you know, we'd really like to get some of this Budwood back because it kind of started our place. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and by that time, you know, things were rocking and, you know, people get protective of their clones and they think they're mm -hmm. pretty special and we were you know it's our you know it's our hillside select clone from the isley and all that but it was like yeah of course you know have to you know so it was great so your dad was great you know we gave him some budwood to get him you know some new plantings and uh, all was well and the final chapter of the story is about eight or nine years later i had to replant sunspot <laughs> and I, I wanted to get no. and my and my budwood was <laughs> Had gotten a little junky with virus and all that stuff. So yeah. I actually called your dad and said, hey, Bart, do you mind if I kind of come up and get some <laughs> clean budwood? And he was really cute because he kind of did what I did the first time. I was like, well, and I said, come on, Bart. He said, okay, for Schaefer for you only because we got this kind of thing. I said, cool. So that was, oh, um, that was really fun. That's awesome. That was really cool. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if you know that story. I don't know that story. And I think it just speaks to the fact that, you know, we're so entwined in this valley. Um, it's really funny when people from outside come in and they're like, oh, you're competitors. And it's like, well, kind of. But it's also like, did you hear this story about my dad? Oh, did you hear this story about your mom? Like, da, da, da. I was at a dinner um, back when we thought we were actually going to be able to host Auction Napa Valley this year, which sadly we weren't able to do. I know. Um, I did a dinner down in L.A. with a bunch of people um, and I hosted it, co-hosted it with Carissa Mondavi, Maya Dalavalli, and Amanda Harlan. Um, and it was hilarious. We had the best time. And again, you know, we hear you all of a sudden you hear all these stories that, you know, some of them are, are total like legends in my family and include members of their families and they'd never heard them before. That's great. So, um, yeah. Well, and I think it speaks to the reasons why we support each other and work with each other, especially when things are tough. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's fun. That that would have been a good dinner to be at. I would have enjoyed that one. Um, <laughs> it was a great dinner. We, we are doing a redo. We've already decided because we had so much fun. <laughs> so mid nineties, your folks are working with Tony Soder and Mia, but they mm -hmm. but, but a new winemaker comes on the scene. What? Tell me that story. Yeah. So in nineteen ninety three, so only two years in, um, they actually brought in this amazing Luxembourgish fabulous, incredible human being named Francoise Pichon. And Francoise started making our wine in 1993. Um, Tony left shortly thereafter. And she has literally made all of the wines our family's made through Araujo into Echendo ever since 1993. 
wow. which is kind of amazing. Yeah. And she's just, I mean, you know, Francoise, she's like the most insanely amazing human being. She's just fabulous and the most talented winemaker and ridiculously humble to a fault. Um, she's kind of the whole package and she makes incredible baked goods, which yes. is an added bonus. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so she came on in 93 and then uh, she brought Nigel Kinsman on in 2010. And the two of them actually followed us over to Echendo. So they're actually making our wines at Echendo now too, which is great. So it's That's sort great. of Keep it going. keeping it all in the family. Yeah. yeah. Nice. So getting back to you. So your parents are in Napa. They're making wine. Um, mm-hmm. You're in college. I read somewhere that you got a job at Phelps at some point. <laughs> yes, yeah, <was> my first <laughs> job in the industry. Oh, wow. Um, Joe and Bruce Nyers decided I was home for the summer and um, they created an internship for me that was three days in the cellar, three days in the tasting room for like two and a half months or something. And um, God, I've never worked so hard in my whole life. I have never been so ripped. It was ridiculous <laughs> from working in the cellar. Like, cause I got to do all the really cruddy jobs that nobody wants to do. Cause I was low person on the totem pole, right? Like, yes, we get to torture the intern. That's sort of how it works. And, um, like sulfuring barrels and cleaning bungs and like just <laughs> nasty stuff. But I learned more that summer, quite honestly, than I think I've ever learned in any wine class or course I've ever done my whole life. Wow. It was amazing. And people were just so generous, you know, they really, whether it was in the cellar or the tasting room, they really were there because they love what they do and they really wanted to share that passion. And I was sort of like a sponge. I mean, I just, I was soaking it all up. And, you know, I was in college and then I had... I had all kinds of things I wanted to do and I wasn't ready to come back to the family business, which honestly I think was the right decision for me because I really believe that I bring more to the table now than I would have if I'd come straight out of college. But um, yeah, so I went over to the UK. I did my master's in medieval studies, which is super, super interesting and very, very useless. And, um, <laughs> and then, I'm curious about when did the wine bug hit for you? Was it during that job or was it before once your folks started? Hit. What do you think? What, what? The bug hit certainly, I mean, the love for the place hit the minute they bought the place. I mean, okay. and, and really, Isley and Napa generally, it's the place anyone in my family has lived the longest since I've been alive. Mm-hmm. And it's the place I always came back to, um, whether it was vacation or holidays or whatever. Um, so it was like the anchor, right? Right. But I had the anchor and I needed, I was still a balloon. I still needed to fly and, and I still knew I could come home whenever I wanted to, but I needed to do my own thing. Well, so, and, your, and um, your own thing, I got to hear this because I'm, you know, <laughs> my own thing. Yeah, I'll tell you your own thing. I, what do you have? Four academic degrees. Is that it? How many yeah. Do you oh, if I could, if I could have stayed in school my whole life, I probably would have. Like, okay. I love school. I am okay. a total, total geek, completely. <laughs> I love, I love learning. I love all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, so I, um, it was pretty funny. I went, did my master's, realized that I, you know, it, it is a fabulous field. But basically, there are two jobs. There's one in Kalamazoo, one in York, which was where I was, and. Um, you basically go off, you get your PhD for like three or four years, and then you have to teach freshman English and wait for someone to die and get like slowly ever more bitter. And, <laughs> and I just didn't see that as a dynamic career path for me. So anyway, I also had desperately wanted to go to drama school for a long time, and I okay. never quite had the guts to do it. So I said, you know what? I'm at this crossroads. I'm 23 years old, like the ripe old age of 23. And um, maybe I apply to drama school. And if the universe wants me to go, I'll get in. And um, I guess the universe wanted me to go because I got in. So I went to drama school over in the UK. Okay. And I was an actress in London for about seven years. No, wait a minute. Time out. Yeah. I, I had, <laughs> time out. <laughs> time out. I did okay. four academic degrees, acting mm. career in London for seven years. Yep. I never knew about the acting thing. Tell me more about that. Was it? I know. Well, Broadway? You know, it's, what? Not Broadway, No, sorry. good Lord, no. Um, the West End. West End. Uh, but Pardon. no, I'm, I'm in the I, wrong I really, <laughs> exactly. But same, same diff. But um, I really, really love new writing. I love working with the, um, and it's, again, it's my, my academic geekdom that really gets excited with the creativity and the process. Working with writers and directors to kind of create something new. 
And it's so artistically rewarding and so financially not. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, which is fine. When you're in your 20s, like, that's cool. Like, right. you can live on beans and a little bit of cheap white bread. That's that's not a problem. <laughs> but um, I also got to the point, I started having a little more success, which was great. But as I got more success, I it was more evident to me that there were going to be... Um, some ethical and physical sacrifices I was going to have to make in order oh. to have more success, particularly as a woman in that industry. And I, I just am really grateful that as much as I loved it and as much as I wanted it, my 29-year-old self or 30-year-old self or whatever I was uh, had the wherewithal to say, hmm, you know what? No. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Not going to do that. Not going to do that. Well, good for you. Well, and the good news is I also had this other thing, right? So I'd had the academic, I'd had the artistic, and then I was like, you know, thinking back to that summer at Phelps, like wine kind of was both of those things at once. It huh. had the academic and it had the creative and artistic, and right. maybe this is something I can do. Still wasn't ready to come back to Napa. But I fell into a job completely. And again, I, I am a firm believer that the universe puts me where I'm supposed to be. And when it when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, it's easy. Like okay. it just paths open. Uh, and I fell into a job at Moet Hennessy. Um, and it's pretty funny, actually. Um, how, how, is, how, how'd, you, how'd you fall into that job? I mean, uh, Random. I had a two-week temp job, actually, because I was between acting gigs in the PR department in London. And uh, I loved it. It was so much fun. I loved the people. I loved the company. I loved the brands. I was having a great time. But there were no jobs available. And then the last day, my Friday at whatever, 11 a.m., the note, a note went around to everyone in the company saying, by the way, this person has just resigned. If you know of anyone who can take her place, please go see Sue in HR. So I ran upstairs <laughs> and was like, hi, Sue. You know me. You want to hire me. Um, and it was pretty funny. It was actually, it was a PA to the to the managing director. Um, and now you, <laughs> I said Boy, her, that's a, what a position. You saw everything, didn't you? Oh, I saw everything. I know where <laughs> all those skeletons are, by the way. Um, but which I obviously, because I'm a fabulous PA, would never reveal. But it was pretty funny. So I started off as, he was the managing director of the UK. And between the time I accepted the job and the time I started the job, which was like two weeks, he became the managing director of Europe. Wow. So all of a sudden I was being to the managing director of Europe. Six months in, they lost the area manager for Austria. So he said, can you do this and do your job for me as well at the same time? I was like, sure. So I became the area manager for Austria as well. And then um, I was doing this uh, qualification over in Bordeaux. So I was flying from London to Bordeaux like for three days a week every week for nine months or whatever. And when I finished that, I actually got headhunted by somebody else in the company and my boss was really mad. And he was like, but you know all the stuff we have to do. And I was like, yeah, but I don't, I, you know, you're a great guy, you're a wonderful mentor, but I don't want to be your PA for the rest of my life, sorry. And he said, well, write me a job description then. Have it on my desk by tomorrow. I was like, uh, <laughs> okay. So I'm frantically in the Eurostar coming back from Paris, like frantically writing a job description for myself. Um, and I became projects manager uh, for the whole European team. So I was running all the cross-European projects, whether they were in marketing or supply chain or IT or whatever. Um, I was sort of coordinating them between all the European countries, which is a super fabulous, like drinking from the fire hose oh, yeah. way to <laughs> learn about the industry. And how old, um, how old are you now at this point? So at that point, I was... 32, 33. Wow. And that's when I realized that this was, this industry was for me. Like this is absolutely what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I realized that I was now in competition with people who either um, had not been actors through their 20s and had seven years more experience than me <laughs> or had an MBA. Right. So um, that's when I decided to apply to INSEAD, um, which is an MBA program over in France uh, and Asia actually. Um, and I got in, so I went and did my MBA. And then when I came out, I, it was so funny. It was 2004 and I really wanted to, I was like, wine marketing and wine strategy is like such a big, there's a huge gap in France. Like there's, nobody's doing this except for champagne. And I think I could really add value and I could be like this outsourced resource. And 
Um, I underestimated the desire of the French to put everything in a box, like a pre-designed box that they can check. So it was pretty funny. I had a couple of great clients that started off with me right away. Um, so I sort of opened my own shop, basically. Yeah, it was your own shop, Terra Teravina. Yeah, Teravina. Right. Yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. Wow, look at you. Look at um, me. <laughs> yeah, if I didn't know about the acting gig, okay, come on. Yeah, no, I got to get fun. something. Exactly. Um, yeah, and then one of my, um, you know, about six months in, I get a call from the Napa Valley Vintners, and they said, "Hey, you're doing this for French people. Can you do it for us too?" I was like, <laughs> "Uh, yes, sure." And by that time, I was actually starting to do a lot of work in Asia. Um, and particularly in China. And, uh, and that's sort of how I started. So I think the first time we met, um, which you probably don't remember because I was, uh, you know, in the worker bee space. But, um, <laughs> oh, come on. I was organizing, I organized the very first joint vintners trip over to China. Okay. Um, yeah, the first was, and second, I believe. Yeah. So it was like 2010, maybe. Okay. So Someone yeah, I was probably, I was, yeah. So I was pouring wine. You walked up and said, hi, I'm Jamie Araujo. I said, uh, no, I actually, <laughs> I, okay. So you were doing a special retrospective of Hillside Select. And we had this special room. I still remember like it was all windows on one side and everything. And we were setting it all up for you. And we got to the, like, you know, 20 minutes before showtime. And <laughs> Somebody, I don't remember if it was you or somebody on the team, but looked and went, there are no spit cups. There are no, what are we going to do? I was like, oh, crud. And I was working with Sessa Beckett at the time. Oh, yeah, Sessa. Like, right. Oh, no. And we're like, so we go to the hotel and they're like, nah, we can't help you. It's like, are you kidding me? Just coffee mugs. I don't yeah. care. Something. Yeah. Nope. Can't help you. And so Sessa and I <laughs> literally like ran around and I'm pretty sure it was Beijing and like trying desperately. And we ended up finding some kind of plastic cups that worked. But I think they might have even had like happy birthday on them or something. But um, <laughs> I was I, so you know, embarrassed. So no wonder you so remember that because you guys had the, the, the panic attack thing. You know, exactly. I, it was like it was an, exactly. another another gig. Oh, but funny. you were very gracious and took it all with a with a grain of salt, which I appreciated enormously at the time. Oh, good. So thank well. you. Oh, hey, listen, I, you know, how many times have I messed up, you know, I, or, or missed something, you know, we all yeah. you just do the best you can. No worries. Well, well, thanks for saving the day on that one. I appreciate it. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Yeah. So you were working for the vendors and then, yep. uh, and so at some point you ended up working with, uh, Araujo Estate. Is that, is that the, was that yeah. the next move? Yeah. So, um, I started, it was, I was actually, you know, sitting around the table at Thanksgiving or something, I think, and talking about some of my clients and my dad's like, why are you not doing this for us? <laughs> I said, well, cause you've never asked me. He's like, well, give me a proposal by tomorrow morning. You see a theme in my life here, right? All these yeah. guys being like, give me a proposal by tomorrow morning. It's like, uh, okay. Wait, um, no, he didn't interview. Yeah. Come on. I, no, I'm oh no, wait, that came later. That came later. Um, <laughs> I was just a consultant at this point. So oh, um, I see, yeah, I see, I see. so I consulted with them for about 18 months, two years, I guess. Okay. And, um, and then, you know, we sort of had some discussions and talked about me coming in house. And yeah, no, I had 18 months worth of job interviews <laughs> with my, my dad and Daphne. No, for real. 18 months and every single time it was like okay well we're not really sure we need this from you we need this like i had to do presentations i had to do spreadsheets like it was crazy wow they really put, yeah. you, put, put it to you oh for sure well but this is you know you understand in a family business you mm -hmm. kind of have two ways to run it i guess you either are like yep you're part of the family you're in the business or you're part of the family so you have to work five times as hard and show everybody that there's no way this could be nepotism because you're so awesome. It makes total sense to hire you, right? Right. No, it's 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 tricky. It's uh, mm -hmm. it's 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 not. You know, I think some people look at it and say, "Oh, that's that's easy. That's romantic." Boom. It's like, no, there's uh, there's lots of things going on. Um, in a, in a, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 did I did I just sigh big time? A big sigh there. You know what? I, I tell you what, the acid test for me is on on family business stuff. It's um um. What's what's it look like at the Thanksgiving table? Oh my God, that's so funny you say that because you know I saying? always say like, like, yeah, you can fight, but you got to sit with these people at Thanksgiving. At Thanksgiving, how's that work? I mean, for the rest of your lives, you're going to have Thanksgiving together, you know, together. Mm -hmm. So, does it really make sense to do A or B in this situation? 
That's been that, a, that's been a guiding light for me a lot of times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think you're you're absolutely right. I 100% agree. <laughs> and and but in a way, I think it also makes you dig in a little and maybe look for solutions where otherwise you're just like, you know what? I'm just going to cut bait. I'm done. I can't right. deal with this anymore, right? Yeah. You actually say, okay, like you say, you know, Thanksgiving is in X number of months. I got to sit down and figure this out. <laughs> well, yeah. We have to find a compromise and a solution because this is this is not going away. Well, business is great. Um, building a successful business is great. Um, f- mm-hmm. Family's really important. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> we're want to get morbid here but at the end of the at, at the end of the program you know you know who's hanging out family or you know the people you did business with so yep. uh, it's it's easy to say and I don't always do it right but um you know if you take a moment and take a walk and think about it you know you know, do the right no, thing. Sure. Yeah. And by the way, when you meet that person who always does everything right, please let me know. No, no. I, haven't, I haven't met them yet. No, no, no. They're, <laughs> but, they're, um, but yeah, no, I think family Trump has to trump business. Yeah. Family has to be the most important thing. Got it. And that has to be sort of the guiding light. Now, it doesn't mean you don't, you always agree or that you won't have oh. certain issues or arguments or conflicts or whatever. But, you know, family has to be the, the guiding light. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. And speaking of family business, then all of a sudden, so, so you started there at Araujo around when, 2012, 2011? Because <laughs> what happened? So <laughs> Something I came happened. on full time. I right. came on full time January 1st, 2013, which and, was awesome. <laughs> okay. I was super excited. Vice president of international markets. I was like taking care of Asia and Europe and looking to expand into South America. <laughs> and, um, Within six months, <laughs> it sold the company. <laughs> now, this was not due to the fact that I came on in January. I just want to make that very clear. I understand. Uh, it was it was outside my control. But no, you know, I think my parents have always been very clear about the fact that they felt they were stewards of the Isley Vineyard, not owners. And I think they feel like that about about Napa generally. I think they feel like they're they're stewards. They are you know coming into the kind of mentorship roles that people like your dad actually had mm-hmm. with them when they first arrived. And and so it's not about like what I have or what I put my name on or what I can get, but it's about how do I make this a better place for my kids and my grandkids. And, um, you know, my dad always says, he says it was the right buyer at the wrong time, but what are you going to do when you have an offer like that, Chateau Latour, that comes and says, actually, this is the only place outside France that we want to purchase. Wow. And we want to do it now. And, you know, they farm organically, biodynamically. They obviously make one of the most beautiful Cabernets on the planet. Um, they have an incredible winemaking team. They have super deep pockets. It, it For the property, it would have been to do it a disservice, and it would have been to be selfish to say no, quite honestly. Oh no! Um, I think I think it was a great move, and I think it was wonderful. It was you know it, it was it was fast. It was a surprise to everybody, but at the same time, mm. you take a look at it and said, "Hey, you know, you know, good on you." It was great. Yeah, and I think I think you know when you see it from outside, sometimes it's like, "Oh, they just cashed out," and it's like, "No, no, no, that's not where it came from." Um, it really was sort of doing what's in the best interests of that property sure. and putting our ego to one side. Um, but it was still painful. I mean, I actually, you know, um, my family actually did a whole like photo album book of the little cottage where we had spent all of our summers and everything because it's like the most wonderful little cottage in the planet and we mm-hmm. just adore it. And like that's where our, my kids came when they were babies and hung out and watched the jackrabbits and, you know, ran out and right. ate several cases worth of grapes, much to my dad's chagrin. Um, in like August, <laughs> he was like, uh, yeah, can you slow your son down there a little? Cause I think he's just like cutting into our margin, but, um, you know, it's a very special piece of property and, and we still go up and, and I love that place. I mean, I, I absolutely adore it, but in the same way, you know, in the Isleys sold to us, I still, you know, Francie and Glennie, the, the Isley daughters, um, Barbara still came to my wedding in France years ago. 
when she was like 92 years old. Wow. And uh, Fran- <laughs> Francie and Glennie are good friends and I see them as often as I can. Sadly with COVID, not as often as I'd like. But um, you know, we still have that bond and I think the bond with the property stays with us even though we're not there. And it's allowed us to do something really special as a family, which is to create a chendo and be you know, four partners with my brother, myself, Dad and Daphne. Um, and that would not have happened in the same way. Oh yeah. If we had been employees of, um, it's a it's a different thing to be a partner with your parent. I think. No, it's, I don't it's, know. It's neat. You tell me. <laughs> well, no, it's great. But um, I want to jump in their next, well, all of yours next the next stage here in a second. But before we do that, I was thinking about you and and looking at everything you've done, you know, in France and in this country. I mean, not many people have seen both have seen the wine business from the French side or the European side you know, on the inside and, and, and conversely in from the American viewpoint, what's it saying? You've had that. What's it like between, you know, the European folks and the American folks in the wine business? Are they, are they in line, same type of kind of attitude and values and approaches, or is there a lot of differences? I'm just curious about that. Um, I think there, there are as many things that make us the same as that separate us and make us different. Um, you know, I think obviously our industry out in California is more, and Napa more specifically, is so much younger than mm-hmm. a lot of the places in, in Europe. So on the one hand, that gives us a certain energy and dynamism and um, a certain freedom uh, because we don't have so many rules and regulations in place over hundreds of years. But it also makes us a little less stable, right? And, uh, you know, especially when I think of family businesses, there are families that have been doing this for 20 generations. They've right. kind of they've <laughs> gotten the kinks out. <laughs> they figured it out. <laughs> exactly. Whereas, you know, we're maybe on third generation and a lot of us haven't managed it very well. You know, there's been a lot of I, I would hasten to say, though, I do think that for all the um, family businesses in Napa that have not done well, that have made the headlines and been very splashy, uh, there are. 10 to 20 that you never heard of that are doing great. Yeah. And I mean, I look at, our, I do still love though, I don't know how you feel, but it cracks me up that like I'm 50 and I'm still at the kids table, um, <laughs> which is kind of awesome. I mean, I love it, but but it's, you know, my generation and, and the generation a little younger than me that's coming in right now, they're, we're everywhere. You know, uh-huh. I was talking about um, Carissa and Amanda and Maya, but I mean, Shannon Staglin, and um, Alan Viadere and you and I mean I could go on and on. And oh on and no, on. Will Phelps. Unfortunately, I'm I'm in, I'm a I'm a step I'm a half a step you know, ahead well, of you. Well, so, I still yeah. count you. I still count you. Oh, thank you. Making my you have a, you have an honorary seat at the kids table if you want it. <laughs> Good works for me. That'd be great. It's a fun table, let me tell you. <laughs> But no, I mean, I think there are a ton of us and we're doing really wonderful things and sort of preparing this next chapter for Napa. If you'd asked me 10, 15 years ago, I would have said that the biggest challenge facing Napa was the fact that all these next generation people were not going to come back and that we were going to have all these gorgeous, amazing, fabulous heritage vineyards sold off to God knows who. Right. And for whatever reason, we're like little homing pigeons. We all just, the last sort of... Yeah, the last five, 10 years, everybody's like, boop, 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 boop. And we really like each other too, which is bizarre. No, right? it's I don't not, know. It's I don't not, know any other industry, but I don't know. I don't know any other industry where you're like, but I actually really enjoy all these people like so much. I think they're awesome. No. I would choose to work with them. I would choose to be friends with them, yeah. which is such a joy and such a privilege for real. Well, it's because we get to do this really cool thing. You know, we get to grow something and produce something and then sell it and market it and this whole, and it's, and we're all in it together. And we, you know, we, we're all um, at the mercy of mother nature. And so, you know, when you're at the store, you don't see each other. It's like, yeah, it's a hot day. It's a cold day. Yeah. It's raining. I mean, we're all, it all comes down to farming and that, yeah. that's a, that's a bond. I mean, cause we're all in, we're all in totally. this boat. We're all in this boat together. <laughs> so we, we got to get along and, um, yeah. no, it is good. So, yeah. so with you guys, you so Araho estate sells, you, mm-hmm. I think you helped out with the new owners for a while. Um, yeah. but, but now, but what, Tell, how did you guys and your folks get to the next step? Wheeler Farms, the Chendo. I, I need to hear oh, all about wow. that because it happened. It's 
cool. Tell me that story. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so dad jokes that he retired for 24 hours. Um, <laughs> I think he's being extremely generous. I think it was like 24 seconds. Um, and, and basically, you know, we sold in July of 2013, Araho Estate, and Achendo was founded in August of 2013. <laughs> um, we actually had our first vintage in 2013. And it's a testament, honestly, to the relationships that my parents have created over 30 years in this valley um, that, you know, they put the call out and said, we've decided we're going to do something new with our kids and we need some grapes. You got anything going? Like right before <laughs> harvest to some of the most iconic vineyards in the valley. Wow. It's completely insane. Um, but the idea was that, you know, we'd been, um, we'd had the, the great privilege and good fortune to drink some of the older uh, Napa wines, sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, um, mostly at Press, uh, honestly, the restaurant here in St. Lena mm -hmm. that has the, had, <laughs> actually, I think we've drunk most of their reserve list, but um, they had, you know, this just incredible reserve list. And we were drinking these wines and we're like, uh, excuse me, can you please explain to me why these wines are fresh and elegant and stunning and we thought they'd be over the hill and they're just not? And so we started doing a little research and found that actually a lot of them were not single vineyard. A lot of them were mix, uh, a mix of several different vineyards, mostly on the sort of Western, what we call the bench land, which right. for those who haven't been to Napa or don't know it, um, is sort of not the hillside, not the valley floor, but in the middle. Um, the, the gold, I always call it the Goldilocks coast, right? right it's like, right. not too big. It's not too small. Um, and it, oh, really oh, sort of Rutherford, Oakville, Yauntville, the sort of heart of the Napa Valley. And so, um, then we started looking, we're like, hang on, but we know all those people. They're really cool. They're good friends of ours. And maybe we could talk <laughs> to them and maybe we could do that. And, that, 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 that. and it's sort of one thing led to another, um, and it's pretty ironic, you know, I mentioned before, like my dad can't do anything by halves. Like he just can't. And, you know, we all have known him for a very long time. Some of us all of our lives. And we should know this by now. And he was like, I just want to make like 50 cases. <laughs> no, no, and no, Daphne no, was no. Like, <laughs> no, yeah, no okay. he didn't say that. I know. As long I know, as it's Bart, 50 there's cases. no way. Yeah, okay. Exactly, right? And then he's like, okay, well, 50 cases of each wine. And then this and that. And then, you know, they were looking actually... Because one of the things they sold their house when they sold the the Isley Vineyard as well. Okay. Because they lived on the property, so they were looking for a new home. And then, <laughs> on the bizarrely on the residential listings, they find this ten acre property in the center of Napa Valley, just south of Saint Helena, with a fully grandfathered permit for a fifty thousand gallon winery. Um, and you know, I mean, red rag to a bull. My dad's like, uh, yeah, I could do that. So Wheeler Farms was born, basically. <laughs> and, um, and the reason it's called Wheeler Farms is the last 10 acres of what was the Wheeler Farms, which is a 2,000-acre property, kind of, that was most of the center of Napa Valley when it was originally founded and wow. got sold off bit by bit over generations. Um, and again, you know, and this whole idea that, like, it doesn't have to have our name on it. Like, sure. our ego is good. Like, yeah. my, you know, my parents have, they have very little to prove, although it doesn't stop them from wanting to prove to themselves every single day that they're doing better than they did yesterday. But yeah, we felt it was more important to honor the heritage of the property rather than our family. Well, it's beautiful. So it's, it's it's right there on yeah. Zinfandel Lane. I watch, oh, I, that's so the road I, I drive that road every day coming to work and uh, I watch that thing go up. It's an absolute beautiful facility. And uh, Oh, thank you. No, it's, it's I mean, it, it just fits. It's not, it's just gorgeous. So yeah, but I'm not surprised knowing you guys and the Araujo <laughs> family. You know, that's you guys do things, everything first class. So, so, but oh, it's is you. it is it so? Is, there's a Wheeler Farms label, correct? Yeah. So okay. basically, fifty thousand gallons was way bigger than anything that we needed at Achendo. But you know, along that kind of um, community and mentorship spirit, we said, well, wouldn't it be kind of cool to open our doors to a few select people who we think are making some really great wines, but don't happen to have a home for their project and sort of have, you know, like uh, an estate winery, but also kind of like a cooperative, but not a cooperative, like a, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, a custom crush, right? Is that? Well, but it's more than custom more crush, than right? Because it's, it's not just the winemaking side. We also have the hospitality side. Oh, I see. Okay. And I think it's also about exchange. I think it's it's sort of like 
not an incubator per se, but it's it's really wonderful to have, you know, these three or four or five winemakers now um, who are able to talk to each other and learn from each other and 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 not be in a vacuum in their own space, kind of going, mm, um, and, and to really have an exchange of ideas and, and wine too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we always say in our family that we have to guard against a house palate. Now, that may just be an excuse for drinking too much. But, <laughs> um, we, uh, no, we always, we do comparative tastings all the time. We really think it's important. Uh, and so having all these other wines around, and then we decided to make some wine under the J.H. Wheeler name, again, sort of as a, an homage to that family and to this property. Okay. But a, ch- but a chendo, what's a chendo mean? Hmm. So me. a chendo, the, the, name of the, the name of this project, I swear to God, was literally the hardest thing of the whole. I mean, but you would think like getting the grapes, making the wine, building Wheeler Farms. Nope. Nothing was as frustrating and difficult as getting the name. Well, you've got four people, four really strong people have got to no, agree, right? No, in fact, it wasn't even that. <laughs> okay. We agreed on all kinds of things, but like we even made up a name and <laughs> went to the lawyers and they're like, nope, nope, there's like a brewery in Wisconsin that has that name. We're like, we literally just made that up. That's not possible. Anyway, so um, we tried, tried, tried. By, tried, the, by tried. the way, everything the, was taken. The breweries, it's the, brew, it's the microbreweries that have all the good names. That's they been do. that's been my experience. Because twenty years ago, Jamie, I could I could cook up a name and you know it was pretty good. And the la- I've had a couple go rounds the last eight or ten years, and it's like, yeah. oh, these brew pubs are killing me, man. They've got everything. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's totally. Oh, true. oh well. Um, I love it. I, was, I, I was, love it. Oh, but I'll tell you those stories later. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. f- f- carry on with the chendo. Yeah. No. So um, so it was actually our operations manager who went home with a bunch of dictionaries one weekend and came back on Monday and said, you guys, I think I found something. <laughs> and she said, you know, it's, it's a chendo. It's a Latin verb. It means to illuminate, to inspire, to um, arouse and excite. And, it, you know, and I said, and it starts with an A and ends with an O and nobody can pronounce it and nobody can spell it. Wow, sounds familiar. Um, huh. So, yeah, we went from Araujo to Achendo. Uh, but it does have a very specific meaning to us, um, for sure. We think of it as a way to remind ourselves that, you know, like you said, the we're all in this together, and it's important to inspire each other to try and, you know, light up the dark times and and hopefully to get people excited about the wines we're making and what we're doing in this valley. Right. So there you go. And, and you guys, family business, I know what it's like, um, <laughs> in your opinion, you know, when it works well, what, what makes it work well? What helps the, what makes it succeed? What do you think? Um, you know, it's interesting when I did my MBA, um, and at the time I had no concept that I would ever work in the family business. Um, but I took a family firm's course and I remember them saying that family business when it works well is literally like the most efficient and um, the businesses that make the highest profit and they are just, they literally, they just run well. And when they don't work well, they are literally the worst. Like they are <laughs> the worst kinds of businesses on the planet. Um, so, so I think there's a big um, responsibility there on all family members mm-hmm. to, um, to do what they can to, to do it right. And I think for us anyway, um, we have found, and you know, it's been a, it's, it's been a really interesting journey because we've had the double whammy of working together as a family and starting a whole new business, right? Right, right. At the same time, which is crazy. I, I, you know, when I look back on it, I'm like, what were we thinking? But I'm glad <laughs> we did, but holy moly. Anyway, so I think for us, communication has been, if I had to choose one thing, communication is the most essential thing. Um, you know, we have weekly meetings, the four of us, and we, you know, do our best to make sure everybody's copied on everything. So we have very large inboxes, but it really, it's so, so important because, um, I think the biggest trip up or pitfall that you can have with family business is assuming that you know what the other person's thinking because you know them so well, because they're your family and assuming you guys have the same vision or viewpoint on something when you have no idea 
<laughs> just because you know that, yeah, they're definitely going to want this on the Thanksgiving table for dinner, going back to Thanksgiving. You can tell <laughs> it's a very seasonal podcast. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> no, it, you know, just because you know what they want on the table for Thanksgiving does not mean that you know exactly how they feel about the cash flow projections for next year, or right. whatever it is, right. or this decision to bring on another vineyard or to make an investment or to go travel to a market. You really have to be very explicit. And it's it feels a little unnatural sometimes because, you know, you're you're explaining things that sound so obvious. But I think it really is um, for us anyway, has been an amazing way to avoid pitfalls um, is to be extremely open with communication. For I, sure. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I remember, um, and not just just the straight business communication. I mean, I had so many times with my dad, it'd be um, oh, casual conversations. Um, mm. You know, we're, we're in the, you know, we're running in, in the, run into each other in the kitchen, getting a cup of coffee. And it's like, you know, hey, you know, um, did you see the game yesterday? Yeah, bop, 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 bop. Did you? Notice what was going on, you know, on the sidelines or that ad or, you know, all of, which all of a sudden it kind of works into a kind of a marketing idea for the winery. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I mean, there was stuff yeah. like that going on and it was just kind of, um, I miss them a lot because um, mm. it's just those, uh, those casual exchanges and um, would, uh, would be the seeds, oftentimes the seed of new ideas, which was really, was really cool. Really cool. Yeah. Well, and he was such an extraordinary man too. We all adored him. Well, he was a, so much. He was he was a tiger. <laughs> mine's, <laughs> mine's, mine, reminds me of your father. No, for sure. I think you and I have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, so with the new operation, what I'm I'm assuming you're doing the marketing and sales. Is that correct, or what? What are you involved with? Um, you know, it's interesting. The way we've sort of worked it is. I mean, everybody has certain things that they're in charge of. So I'm, you know, I am sort of spearheading the social media mainly because nobody else wants to, let's be fair. But, <laughs> um, you know, and things, you know, the marketing ideas and things like that. I do have my sort of two cents because obviously that's what I was doing professionally for a long time. Um, but we all, you know, I'm working with my dad on the five-year plan right now. So we're working with budgets and numbers and um, my brother's really involved up at Wheeler Farm, so he's looking at our hospitality program and, and how we do visits and all that kind of stuff. And so I think this is, again, we're trying to stay tight as a team and make sure that whatever squeaky wheel gets whatever grease we have. So we, we haven't really divided it up by functional area per se. Um, it's more sort of like, all right, can you take this? Can you, have you got, how much have you got on your plate right now? How about if you take this? And it's, it's, I love it because it actually allows me to work in tons of different areas, which is what I really enjoy. Right. Rather than being sort of siloed. And I think it's, you know, that's where I personally find that you get innovation and creativity, right? Mm -hmm. I always try and go to at least one seminar or trade show or something that has nothing to do with wine every year. Something in a completely different category because... Sometimes that's where all of a sudden it's like, holy, mo what? Hang on, we can totally do this. Like, yeah. why are we doing this? Because that's a great idea. We actually can get very, our vision can get very narrow because, and I think it comes from being an agricultural project and to, product rather. Sorry, mm -hmm. um, to your point about Europe, I think for a long time it was a huge issue for them um, because they were kind of, they didn't just have their feet on the ground; they were stuck in the dirt. And they kind of could see nothing outside their own property. Um, ironically, I think things have switched. I think Napa has a little more of that problem at the moment. <laughs> um, and like Bordeaux and Burgundy have these new generations that have done their, you know, they didn't just go to Davis and come back to Napa, right? They've gone to Australia. They've gone to New Zealand. They've gone to Argentina. They've come to Napa and um, have then come back to Burgundy, Bordeaux, um, Italy, wherever. Right. And they have this vision that is much wider. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be a big challenge for us in Napa moving forward is to avoid, and you know, it's hard for us because we could totally sell everything Napa makes in the United States and be done with it, right? We don't need, in quotation marks, um, international markets, except we do. Oh, we definitely, we definitely do for the brand. We have to. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, and also just, I think in terms of 
our culture and our, our the way we see the world. I think it's so important to open your mind to the fact that that we're just not alone. Right. <laughs> we feel very isolated in the U.S. because we're enormous and we have oceans on two sides, um, despite the fact we do have neighbors to the north and south. Um, but we really are not, and, and and I think in a in the global world that we live in today, whether it's the economy or the climate or whatever, we need those relationships as much as as they need us. So I think, um, you know, on in our little tiny microcosm of of the universe, I think it's super important for Napa to be present um, and thriving in international markets too. Yeah, I totally agree. So. Help me on Ocendo. Are you guys just making Cabernet or what varietals? Nope. So we're making Cabernet and Sauvignon Blanc. Got it. Because okay. that's kind of our wheelhouse. And this next year, so the 2018 vintage, which is going to be released next year, 2021, um, we do have a second wine as well. So at Araujo, we had Alto Gracia, which was our, our second wine. And it wasn't, I mean, I think a lot of people think like with a second wine, and it's like, all right, whatever didn't go into a Chendo, dump it in a bucket, and that'll be the second wine. That's <laughs> not how we do business. So what we do is we make our first cup for the first wine, um, which is the most excellent wine we can possibly make. And then with everything that's left over, we start the exercise all over again. And we taste everything again, and we start blending again, and we make the absolute best wine we can make. So it's the absolute best of Great. whatever didn't go into a Chendo. But... Um, it often has some components that are in a chendo. It's usually, um, it's also, we try and make something that's maybe a little more approachable, a little younger, a little more on the red fruits rather than the black fruits, a little fresher. I mean, even though our whole style is about being fresh and balanced and elegant, even with the first wine. But um, the second wine, so it's actually going to be called La Rea, uh, which is the um, Latin version of the laurel um, and the greek version of the laurel is does anyone know no <laughs> daphne oh daphne mom's name cool yeah, oh good exactly so do so me a favor is sort of named after her good and t tell me the name again because i missed it lorea lorea l-a-u-r-e-a yeah it's really pretty Okay, and then um, and the wine some, is really pretty too there, <laughs> there's something else you know not that you're not busy enough but you start something. You stick. You, what? You're doing your own your own label, right? On top of this. What's, yeah. Tell me I don't about know. that. Yeah. Why not? So um, no, I started. Um, honestly, uh, it's a project called Tuanwa, um, and it's sort of my little passion project. Uh, and yeah, really, kind of started off as a way to use up um, some of the lots that Agendo just had no use for, and has morphed into this whole thing now. Uh, which is pretty wonderful. So cool. my whole goal with it was to to use wine as uh, a vector for change and um, positive force in the community. And so um, just hired a new GM this year and um, a fabulous uh, e-commerce person, um, amazing new consulting winemaker. And um, yeah, we're working with some great little vineyards and and doing a couple of fun things. So it's been it's been an exciting ride this year. Twenty twenty. I was telling somebody I'm like twenty twenty <laughs> is bipolar. Yeah. Right. It's either yeah. the highest high or the lowest low. There's yeah. like nothing in the middle. So and I've had a lot of both. So thankfully, you know, I've had a lot of high highs, which is nice. Good. I'm gonna focus on those. <laughs> do me do me a favor. How do you spell the the new one? Because I can't pronounce it. Oh, Tuanois. Sorry, it means three nuts in French. <laughs> nuts. <laughs> okay. T R O I S. Okay. N O I X. Beautiful. And if you imagine it like T W A N W A, so Toi Noir. Toi Noir. Got it. Go. And what fla and what flavors in, in that one? Um, so it's a little more, um, <laughs> a little more, uh, yeah, different. So we do the Cabernet and the Sauvignon Blanc and right. a Chardonnay. And coming out next year, we actually have a red blend and a Cab Franc. Good. And um, a rosé coming out as well. So a Pinot Noir rosé, which, and it's, you know, our, our sort of motto is um, community, possibility, opportunity, possibility. So um, I think the rosé is the perfect example. I had a friend from high school 
who randomly sent me an Instagram message after seeing all my stuff about harvest this year. And he said, uh, have you, do you have any use for like three tons of Pinot Noir? Cause I've got this stuff at my house in Sonoma and the guy who usually takes it says he can't use it anymore. And I don't know what to do. It's like, <laughs> okay. So we have this opportunity and I went to the winemaker and the GM and I was like, what do you guys think? We're getting three tons of Pinot Noir for free. We can make rosé. And they're like, awesome, let's do it. Wow. And so we Fun. grabbed a crew and went over to okay. harvest and <laughs> we're making Sonoma rosé of Pinot Noir. There you go. Um, so anyway, yeah. So, but you know, I can be a little more nimble with Tuanois because yeah. the stakes aren't quite as high. And also I'm a little more, there aren't as many decision makers, I guess. Of course. Well, it's fun. It's your own thing. That's good to <laughs> it have. It is fun. It is so, fun. So tell me, how can people find all these different wines? What's the best way for them to, if they want to check them out? Yeah, absolutely. So Achendo is, um, you know, we really, we don't make very much. Um, and so we do have uh, our wines on allocation. Um, but if you come on to our website, so achendocellars.com, A-C-C-E-N-D-O. Um, <laughs> you, you can <laughs> sign up uh, to the mailing list and, and get those offers sent to you, which is great. Um, our amazing director of private clients, uh, Mikkel Tigret, is awesome and he will take very good care of you. And for Tuanois, um, we actually have our tuanoiswine.com is the website. And our wines are actually for sale on the website. So you can buy them directly from us. Um, good. Sounds great. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm gonna I'm a little hesitant to ask, but is there any, anything else going on? Any new projects? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm good for now. I think I'm good for now. You're good for no, now. I'm just sort of, you know, it's funny. I'm just I cannot get over the fact that I have not been on a plane since March. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that one. That, that's been a I real mean, strange one. It's crazy. I usually travel two weeks a month. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been very weird. But it's also kind of been wonderful to be here and kind of have boots on the ground um, constantly no, I'm, uh, I'm, for such a long time. I'm with you. It's an adjustment. It's definitely it it's been one, and and uh, it's I, I just can't think about what's going to happen. We'll just figure it out. It'll happen. We will indeed. And so, I think you know it's interesting. I, I was thinking about this as I was driving up today, knowing obviously that I was going to speak with you, um, and thinking about your dad and my dad. To your point earlier, um, and I was thinking, you know, it's so interesting. And I think you're a lot further along your process in this. So I would love to take you out to lunch sometime and hear all about it. But um, I was just thinking it's we're on such an interesting position where we're trying to find that balance between, I mean, these are dudes who like have a big shadow, right? Have a big footprint. Right. They're, what they have accomplished is absolutely extraordinary. They're very strong personalities and, and, and they've done incredible things. I mean, it, the respect is just, you know, well-deserved and, and, and mind-blowing. And how do you keep honoring that shadow and keep respecting that space and also have your, because, oh, you know, obviously we're the, we have some of our, the same of our parents' ideals and ways of working and being and, right. and the wines and things like that. And we all are on the same page as far as that's concerned, but we're also different people. We also have different personalities. And I just think it's so interesting because I think sometimes in our, whether it's in our companies or our families or ourselves, we sort of get caught up in that or, or knotted up in that. And I'm wondering if it's actually kind of a wonderful thing for people outside our organization because they can sort of see our brand, our wine, whatever it is that they love and that they continue to love, but they get a whole kind of fresh person, like a whole new layer to it with the next generation. I don't well, know. You Thoughts you do, I have in my car. <laughs> you, do, you do a couple things. You, you make good wine, as good a wine as mm -hmm. you can every year, no matter what. That, that goes without saying. Mm -hmm. And and you be yourself. That's what my dad always told me. I'd be, I'd be going out to do a winemaker dinner back in the early days. I'd be all nervous. It's like, you know, Dad, how do you do it? And taking my notes. And he looks at me and goes, just be yourself. And trust Aww. me, a winemaker dinner with John Schaefer versus Doug Schaefer are, are like night and day. But they both, <laughs> but, but it's, true, it's a true story. But they both yeah. worked. They both worked. Yeah. And um, for different reasons and for even the same type of crowd. So, 
So just well, be yourself. Be yourself and make good wine. It's easy. All right. <laughs> well, that's the first, awesome. first part's easy. Second part's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, All right, for you, sure. Jamie. Jamie, well, so good talking to you. Can I tell you one quick yeah, one? Yeah. Sorry, there's Please. just one tiny little hillside select story that I have to tell you. Sure. And you can edit it out later if you want. But no, it's so. Fine. Um, my brother and I were just first back in the valley and working with Chendo, doing all the stuff. And we <laughs> went to the barrel auction, auction Napa Valley, right? Barrel auction on Friday for the right. first time. And so we're walking in, we're looking at all this stuff. And I look at my brother and of course, we, you know, we know what the barrel auction is, right? Because our family's been doing auction Napa Valley for years. So we walk <laughs> in and I'm looking at the numbers. I'm like, Craig, this is a steal. Like this is crazy <laughs> oh, for a barrel of wine. This is so cheap. We totally have to bid on this stuff. <laughs> I do remember. And he's like, "Good idea." So we go in and we bid on two things. The only two things we wanted to bid on uh, were uh, Covert, uh, which is made by our friend Julian Fayard, and right. Hillside Select. Right. So we put a bid in on, and so we put bids on both of them, and then all of a sudden found out that it's a case. It's not a barrel. We we're I, like, I do remember oh, this. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Anyway, you, oh. and then, you know, you sort of, your name drops off if you're, if 10 people bid over you. Right. So we're watching our name go down. We're like, drop off, drop off. Come on, <laughs> drop off. Come on. Anyway, very happy now oh. to have won our Hillside Select, which is sitting snugly in my cellar. Um, and my brother actually had a bottle of it the other day and he wanted to let me, he wanted me to let you know. That he said it was absolutely good. delicious. Well, I'm glad. He's going to have a really I, hard time leaving it in his cellar know, now because he knows how good it is. I'd forgotten that story, but I do remember because I remember you coming up to me and saying, hey, Doug, let me get this straight. <laughs> I said, yes, Jamie, <laughs> it's just a case. It's not a barrel. And the look on your face was like, oh, man, this oh, is not good. Crud. All right. Well, anyway. hey, it was for, it's all for, it's for a good cause. So definitely, well done. Well, definitely. Done. well, well done you because the wine's gorgeous. Thanks so much for taking the time. It was great to hear your story. I learned a bunch of things I've never known before. And uh, take care of yourself. Say hi to your mom and dad for me, okay? You too. Take very good care and we'll see you soon. Thanks again for having me. I really had a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Jamie. See you. <laughs> take care. Bye. It's always such a pleasure to talk with someone who absolutely loves what they do. And that is always true with Jamie in a big, big way. Every time I chat with her, she always has so much energy and clearly takes so much joy in being part of this business. I hope you'll check out the wines we talked about. Achendo Cellars, Wheeler Farms, or Jamie's own Bois Noir Wines. Thanks very much for listening to another episode of our podcast. If you enjoy it and would like to help other people find us, please rate and review The Taste on iTunes. Also, if you have any thoughts about what we're doing or about our guests, please send us an email at podcast at We'll see you next time.